Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. My name is Andy Libson, and I'm joined by regular uh, commentator, I guess, uh, Kenny Zapeta. Um, and as you can see, we're missing a few folks. Um, Jessica is taking a break because she's got some family stuff. Eduardo is, he's not in Mexico, he's in Colombia, right? Yeah, he's somewhere in the world again. Yes. <laughs> so it's just the two of us. So we're going to have a, a, a special episode, which we'll tell you about in a second. But first, I want to say we are online, or what's left is online at what-s-left.webnode.com. You can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, and share your favorite episodes and jot down our information wherever you find this. Um, so we weren't really sure what to do. Uh, Kenny and I, because we, we actually also had reached out to Allison, who is going to be on an episode in about a week or two, but she can't make it this week. And um, Kenny's just being, you know, barreled at work. <laughs> so this we're actually recording this uh, in the morning. Normally we record in the evenings, but uh, so there might be a little bit of a different mood from not having our regular folks, Jessica and Eduardo, but also, you know, we're kind of doing a morning recording. Um, but when I thought about what I'd want to talk with Kenny about, um, I was like thinking, you know, we're both Marxists and we both have gone through a lot these last two years. And I, I approached Kenny about rereading Communist Manifesto. Um, and at first, I think, Kenny, I told you, well, let's re read the whole thing and just see what, what sticks for us, what doesn't really relate to us, and um, what, uh, you know, what, what is a maybe for it. But when I started getting into it, I realized that for me, the bulk of what is important in that work that I want to discuss is in that first section. Um, and so, and then I said, maybe what we should do is actually read it together, both as a way of you and I just sort of seeing where, where, where are we at with some of these ideas um, that Marx put forward back then and Engels, Frederick Engels. Um, and also we, I want to introduce people who haven't looked at this document before the Communist Manifesto, and see whether they think the world that he's describing in 1848 is reflects the world that is taking place today, and in what way it does, in what way it doesn't, and is it? Do people think this is a useful model for trying to understand what's happening? Um, I'm not going to try to argue with you that not you, Kenny, but our audience that you should, but I would say that these are ideas worth looking at, and if if you if something illuminates for you today. And maybe you'll go on and read the rest of the rest of the manifesto and other things that Marx wrote, like Capital that he wrote went much later. Like this is an early thing um, of his writings, but I do think it's a condensing of some of his big ideas. Um, not he has bigger ideas that come out of Capital, but some of his big ideas about social change and how history changes. Um, so that's my first thought, Kenny. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I mean, um, I. I mean, this will be interesting. We, you and I have never discussed uh, the Communist Manifesto together. Uh, we've never had like a little group study of sorts. Uh, I've tried to have it with other people. And, um, you know, I, I realized that it can be intimidating um, and, and, and it can be difficult, you know, um, in some ways. Um, but, uh, you, know, I, you know, I asked you earlier to maybe if you could share your experience. Um, 
but uh, like you know for me uh it took a while it took uh, various readings especially because english is not my first language and i came across um revolutionary works in english um so it took years for me to actually start making sense of what you know what he's trying to say and to really also um form my own opinions right um because I think it was very easy to just regurgitate things without understanding. And, you know, the more I understand and reread, the more I, I, I understand more profoundly and also find some areas where I'm like, I'm not so sure about this part. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, this was an earlier, you know, work of Marx uh, and Engels. And so, but nonetheless, I think for me personally has a massive explanatory, explanatory power, you know, uh, in, and it, it has shaped in how I understand the world. And it has helped me answer many questions I've had, you know, growing up and understanding um, not just history, not just this abstraction, but my own life, the life of my family, the history of my family and uh, the struggles of, that a lot of us face. Uh, so it's not just this theoretical work for me, you know, it's, it's like a, it uh, gives me a framework to understanding things. Um, and so I'm just curious, I guess, uh, you know, on your part, you know, like how did you come to read the Communist Manifesto and what was your experience with, with the, you know, the, <clears throat> the reading? Um, I guess I would say that my, my reason for reading it was because I, you know, I was, I had, becoming more and more convinced from people talking about Karl Marx and socialist or communist ideas, people who themselves had either read some of this stuff um, or had read people who had read this stuff, you know, um, that, that the way that they were talking about the world that I was seeing in terms of capitalism being the problem, that made the most sense to me. And that led me to join the International Socialist Organization uh, along with it's where Brian featured largely in that, who I had met in, in the war. I, I, I was becoming radicalized at this point around the, the, the war on the war in Kosovo and U S bombing of Yugoslavia back in 1999. And, um, and so what I would say is I probably had some, I, I think I remember having some of those language difficulties or history difficulties. Um, but I, the biggest thing I remember is not really being free to really explore my thoughts um, and, and not recognizing that the organization I was in, was in was both silently and not so silently compelling me to keep a fairly narrow view of my questions. Um, and I think that was a problem for us. I think that it didn't, it didn't really invite bigger questions that might open up areas where Marx needed to be updated or Marx needed to be added to. Again, it treated it like a document, not like a religious document, but like a like the 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 point of the reading the document was to confirm all the views that we already said we agreed with. Um, and and that was the problem. So I don't I don't think I read it freely. So my recollection of reading it is not so much being troubled by the language, although I'm sure I had that. But my recollection of the reading is reading it through a fairly narrow lens that I'm 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 trying to open up and try and that's why I want to reread it with you 
because my lens has definitely been reopened over these last two years. Um, and, uh, and I want to see what, what of this really still holds for me and what of it is shaky and what of it is like, no, I don't, I don't think there's something wrong here. That's going to have to be, um, sorted out. Uh, you know, for me, I actually, the first time I, I, I grew up in Latin America. So my mother played a lot of revolutionary music that made, um, you know, allusion to, you know, revolution and Marx, you know, and a lot of revolutionary uh, people, but I never read it until college, you know, I, I was studying political economy. Um, so I had to study philosophy, you know, political economy. So Marx was, you know, essential to that, Gramsci and other people. And, but honestly, it was just another class. I never, like, that's not where it, it, it sank. You know, I was still a student. I had never had to work, you know, to make a living depending on my family still in, in college loans. And so it didn't really make sense until really the last four years, mm. <laughs> you know, I, and, and I read it throughout the years, um, you know, after I dropped out of college, but it started making sense. And I, I, I didn't have your experience of reading in an institution. When I was in an institution, I actually didn't care so much. It didn't make sense at all because again, they only grab an excerpt and then they, uh, you know, try to, uh, I guess, uh, compare it to other, you know, philosophers. But that, you know, that is a very curated view of, of, of the work in, you know, in, and so, yeah, so I guess uh, I've read it on my own. <laughs> and, um, you know, and that's kind of my experience, but yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so let's, let's go ahead and get started. And, you know, let's see how far we get. Um, like, so we're reading this from the Marxist Internet Archive, um, MIA, um, and you can see it was written in 1847, published in 1848, um, and uh, I'm going to start with some parts from the preface. Uh, there's a preamble that's about the uh, Europe, a specter is haunting Europe, we're, we're going to skip that, um, and we're going to spend all our time on this section, bourgeoisie and proletarians. Um, and section two, proletarians and communists. Um, we won't get into that in section three, so socialists and communist literature. In section four, positions of the communist in relation to the various existing oppositional par opposition parties. We're not touching any of that stuff. Um, and if people want to, they can read it. Um, so let's start with the parts of the preface I thought were interesting. Um, first, this was the first preface written in 1872. What is that, 20, 20 years later? And these, these are all written by Engels. Um, and he writes, the Communist League and International Association of Workers, which could, of course, be only a secret one, under conditions obtained at the time, commissioned us, the undersigned, um, at the Congress held in London um, in November 1847 to write, for to write for publication a detailed theoretic, theoretical and practical program for the party. Such was the origin of the following manifesto, manuscript of which traveled to London to be printed a few weeks before the February uh, French Revolution in 1848. Um, so this is the second part I thought was interesting from that. Um, however much that state of things may have altered during the last 25 years, the general principles laid down in the manifesto are, on the whole, as correct today as ever. Here and there, some detail might be improved. The practical applications of the principles will depend, as the manifesto itself states, everywhere and at all times on the historical conditions for the time being existing. And for that reason, no special stress is laid on the revolutionary measures proposed at the end of section two. 
that's another reason why we're skipping section two is it gets into how communists should organize in some ways and around what ideas communists should organize. Um, so he's saying here that, you know, that could change. Um, that passage would in many respects be very differently worded today. And he's talking in 1872. Uh, um, in view of the gigantic strides of modern industry since 1848 and the accompanying improved and extended organization of the working class, in view of the practical experience gained, first in the February Revolution and then still more in the Paris Commune, where the proletariat for the first time held political power for two months, this program was in some details, this program has in some details been antiquated. One thing especially was proved by the Commune that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. Um, uh, and yeah, he says more about that in something he wrote about the civil war in France. Um, that's where he says, you can't just wield the state, you have to smash the state and form a entirely new one. You, know, you wanna say anything about this? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I didn't read the preface, um, yeah. but it, it, um, it shows, uh, I mean, do you know who wrote the preface? Like, was it both Marx and Engels? Or? No, that I'm pretty sure that was Engels. Let me check again. Da, 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 da. Oh no, those, those were both Karl Marx and Engels wrote that preface. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Well, I think it accounts for some of the doubts I had, you know, in terms of, um, you know, as you know, like being deterministic or like saying that some things are inevitable because. <laughs> You know, as we've seen now, you know, um, I think uh, the Communist Manifesto, as we read it, uh, is very good at talking about the fundamentals of capitalism, how it fundamentally works, uh, not so much as to how we can fight it. Yes, that the working class is the class, the revolutionary class, the only class that can pose a threat to, to you know, this system and this um and, and so, but it, it, again, it, I'm glad that it, that's there. I actually had not read that part because I, I do think it acknowledges that situations change, you know, and, and history is a fluid thing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been 174 years since <laughs> that was written and there hasn't been any long-term successful revolution. And so, you know, that is something we have to face and, and, and consider. Um, you know, because there are some people who read this as, a, you know, again, as a, I think a religious document, as you know, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of things. And I don't think it's inevitable that revolution will happen. And, and so even that last quote where it says that, uh, you know, that we can basically, the working class can't just grab the machinery of the state and use it for its own purposes. It also makes me think of this technology, right? These systems of censorship and, and, you know, that we've, we've, we've acknowledged, in, you know, or we've had a change of heart, I think, in, throughout the last two years, you know, in, in seeing how is those are massive tools of oppression and that actually, you know, impede any sort of organized working uh, class to, you know, to take power. It actually, it, it works against us. And, and so, you know, for me, it's not just about like, you know, the, the, like the military, the legal frameworks, the political framework, it, 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 it's everything, you know, it's, it's, and uh, it, it shows a lot of foresight on their part, you know, and, and I think Russell Luxemburg also talked about that, you know, you know, we have to make do with the tools and conditions of our time. And, 
So I, it's just, you know, for me, it, it stands out for that reason. Yeah. And that's why I picked it because I felt like, all right, he's, they're willing to put some big, so open up some space, a lot of space for, there might be some changes here um, needed to, and that's a big one is to going from thinking that, oh, we will take hold of the state versus no, we will have to smash the state. And I think a similar question lands for me about the means of production. Do we take hold of the means of production or do we smash them? <laughs> I, I think that's a, and I think there's some things in the, in the first section that lead them to want to hold on to those means of production that I think are in partially in error um, to some biases. I feel like they have, but we'll get to that. I hope, hopefully we get to that. Um, all right. So the next part, there are several prefaces written here uh, at different times. And the next one I'm going to read is, is written in 1883. And this one is not written by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. It's written just by Frederick Engels. Um, and he goes, the preface to the present edition, I must alas sign alone. Marx, the man to whom the whole working class of Europe and America owes more than to anyone else, rests at Highgate Cemetery and over his grave, the first grass is already growing. Since his death, March 14, 1883, there can be even less thought of revising or supplementing the manifesto, but I consider it all the more necessary, again, to state the following expressly. And he says this, the basic thought running through the manifesto, that economic production and the structure of society of every historical epoch necessarily arising therefrom constitute the foundation for the political and intellectual history of that epoch. That consequently, every, ever since the dissolution of the primeval communal ownership of land, that would be primitive communism prior to class society. All history has been a history of class struggles, of struggles between exploited and exploiting, between dominate, dominated and dominating classes at various stages of social evolution. That this struggle, however, has now reached a stage where the exploited and oppressed class, the proletariat, can no longer emancipate itself from the class which it exploits and oppresses it, that is the bourgeoisie, without at the same time forever freeing the whole of society from exploitation, oppression, class struggles. This basic thought belongs solely and exclusively to Marx. Do you have anything to say about that? I'll, maybe I can get to the last part. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously, this is like, it shows the human aspect of this. You know, it's like, there were Engels and Marx, and I think a lot of people maybe that are new to this don't realize the contributions of Engels, you know, to, to this, you know, and, he he was for you know overshadowed a lot by you know Marx's name, um, but um, you know I, I I guess for me it's just want to remind that people that the people who write this stuff are people you know who experience things and and go through stuff. Marx himself you know uh, like basically died in poverty as far as, as far as I understand you know and, and you know in you know, and yet I, I just find something uh, like it's, it's glamorized that, you know, people who do this work, who make these contributions, um, you know, like they're in a privileged position and, 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 but there is a cost, there is a price to be paid, you know, to, to speak a truth. And, and so I guess it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you know, I, I want to remind that these are people, these were people, you know, they're not just, uh, 
historical figures that lived in, in history that should live behind a pedestal. And they were people that observed stuff that they didn't invent anything. You know, they, other people have observed similar things, but they don't have the, the, the same uh, recognition. And, and it, this also makes me think because a lot of times people in my circles tend to dismiss Marx and Engels uh, because it's a white thing, they say you know, that this was created by white people. And I just wanna tell those people that, you know, this is not a white thing, you know, like a lot of, for example, I don't wanna pretend that I'm a intellectual giant, but I've, I've come to a lot of conclusions on my own and I found it in Marx, oh, he said that too, you know, and, and I'm not trying to be arrogant. It's just, I wanna recognize my own intellectual power, you know, that if anything, Marx and Engels, for me, synthesized the ideas that I already had the question and gave answers to some questions that I had. And I personally have moved away from completely repeating what they say. You know, I, I just see it as an opinion, you know, from humans that, that wrote this thing. Because otherwise we're, we're looking at a situation where it's like reading the Bible, right? It, from certain, to certain people that is the, ex, the word of God. And to me, it's like, I want people, I would encourage, you know, people to not read it that way, you know, to not read it with, you know, reverence, to actually, you know, question and critique this because they were human. And they also, you know, were not completely right in, in things. And yet this work is powerful in explaining the world 174 years later. Um, and so that's kind of what I wanted to say about that. And also, um, do you mind putting up the, the reading again? Oh yeah, and then the last part of that paragraph where it says, uh, the proletariat can no longer emancipate itself from the class which exploits and oppresses it, the bourgeoisie, without at the same time for, for without at the same time forever freeing the whole society from exploitation, oppression, class struggles. This basic thought belongs solely and exclusively to Marx. So that just reminds me again that, you know, this is a very all-encompassing uh, effort, you know, that is not a single issue thing. It's not just about, you know, politics. This is about community. This is about, you know, the human experience. You know, this is about uh, standing up for, you know, everyone and anyone who's oppressed, you know, and exploited. Um, and, you know, like, uh, this is about sexism and racism, you know, uh, and all the isms, right? That, um, and so if you're not in it for the whole cake, then we're not gonna get there. You know, if we don't address those issues, we can't claim a revolution, a successful revolution, right? Because there is examples in history where, you know, like in Cuba where they oppress, you know, you know, uh, homosexuals and they send them to camps and, mm -hmm. you know, that is not a revolution that I want to be part of. That is not a socialist communist revolution for me. That is complete. Um, if you're nitpicking, uh, what parts are you you're going to deal with? Yeah, and I think what is also the reason I wanted to read that that one paragraph you said about like here is my I I appreciated Engels attempting to synthesize. Okay, here is the core of what you're about to read. Here's the core that's that remains true for us. And he's speaking for himself and Marx, who was, who was dead at this point. Um, and the idea that 
all of society is ultimately organized around how it produces things, economic production. And out of that comes the political spheres, the social spheres, cultural spheres. That's, the, that's an argument that they're making, but that is something they're putting forward. And also an attempt to say that if, if we're going to understand, if we're going to, because he, he exists as, as, as revolutionaries, they existed among a sea of revolutionaries. They speak about those other revolutionaries, I think, in Section 3, who had different ideas about what how capitalism was messed up, including the feudal aristocracy he was talking about, who was talking about how bad capitalism was because capitalism was eating their lunch. So they're gonna they were gonna like hate on it as well. And and you know, he talks about some of those folks. Um, but then there were people like the Fourier people and Owenites who were trying to make capitalism work in a factory. Um, he describes as against capitalism and for and being socialist, but utopian, because they're all trying to stop capitalism take and take capitalism down. But what Marx is saying is there's a, he's saying, and Engels, is there's a science and, it, and there's, a, there's a reason why human history has changed. And they identified the, the engine for human history as the, the, the fight, the contending war between, war between contending classes, basically. And that that is the motor force of history. So if you're going to try to understand how to change history now, you have to understand what those class divisions are today and look at that oppressed class or classes and work from there about how what what how will this class take power and again he's saying the one novel thing is because previously there had been oppressed classes the bourgeoisie was an oppressed class under the aristocracy but they were a minority class when they took power and they weren't going to seize power and turn feudalism into capitalism to benefit everyone. They might've used language to say they're benefiting everyone, but it was a revolution for them and for their interests, not for the interests of all of humanity. And this is another theory that they're stating, which is that this next revolution, if it's going to happen, is, is going to be one that is going to be done by the majority of people and specifically going to be led by the working class. Um, and this is a theory that's underwriting the manifesto. And I think it's underwritten in capital as well. And the last thing I want to cite from the preface was this one that he wrote. Let's see, this one came in 1888, five years later. Um, I thought this was interesting. Um, so he talks again about, he synthesizes in this preface what's, what's at the core of the manifesto, but he adds this. He goes, this proposition, which in my opinion is destined to do for history, what Darwin's theory has done for biology we both of us have been gradually approaching for some years since, uh, for some years before 1845. Um, how far I had independently progressed towards it is best shown by my, by my conditions of the working class in England. But when I again met Marx at Brussels in the spring of 1845, he had already worked out and put it before me in terms almost as clear as those in which I stated it here. Um, and the reason I wanted to bring that up is because of the mention of Darwin and science, um, and that they they saw the, the same way that Darwin and and materialism and scientific materialism that would allow that would allow the capitalists and the bourgeoisie and the working class to make predictions about if we do this, then this will happen about the world around them in terms of shaping the environment, um, and that's what they thought was the contribution of science. They saw themselves in that same in that same tradition of in the same way that Darwin's theory of, of 
the evolution of, of the species is a contribution to human understanding, they're claiming, that helped develop human ability to, to adapt itself to its environment and produce more, potentially, that's what they're saying, um, then they see that they're, they put their contribution in that same history. And that's where that's interesting to me because science right now is, I'm in a very interesting place in my own mind with regards to science. Um, and its contribution, <laughs> um, and of course the, the, the means of production and, and their contribution to a future society. So I don't know what to say about that, but I felt like I wanted to note it because I think in there, in there show is shown some of the the optimism of like, look, we can we can know all this stuff, but I think there's a as we've talked about in the Diego Rivera episodes, there are some perils to all of that as well that in some ways I don't think are acknowledged by Engels and Marx um, and, and that are gonna, you're gonna see repeated, I think in the Communist Manifesto when they talk about developing society versus old society. Um, so I don't know, Kenny, what, do you, what would you say about that? Um, well, similarly to you, I, you know, my relationship to science has shifted, you know, um, and um, like, I, I don't see it, that different than I see religion, you know, like as a belief system, <laughs> you know, especially now. Um, and I, I mean, I do think that at the time, you know, like, um, cause th that was remnants of the enlightenment, right? Like the, yeah, the, you know, and so there was this emphasis on, you know, empiricism, right. And, and measuring things and observing things and forming theories, um, to understand the world. And, um, Again, it's still a theory. It's an observation. It's not. Um, I have a problem with determining the future. Like I, I appreciate the trying to understand what's happening, right, and why, but not in terms of like, uh, I guess, organizing a society. Um, I think that that process has to be more organic, and you know, and it's going to involve people that have never read Marx, you know, and they will never read Marx, and. Um, or don't have that approach, and then I have other ways, uh, types of knowledge, um, you know, and and so I do think there is like this reflects a little bit of the arrogance of the time, you know, of the arrogance of science, of Western science, um, and so I uh, again I appreciate the descriptive, explanatory power, not so much the deterministic or inevitability of things to happen um, because I do believe things can shift um, you know and and so that that's what I'll say you know like I, I look at you know because I, I I have been that person who has claimed Marxism as a science um, and you know I, I'm thinking I'm rethinking that yeah and I think my own senses is if I if I reject all of science then mm -hmm. I have to reject Marxism out of hand. Then, then any of these descriptors are of no meaning and of no help for humanity. Um, so I, I don't go that far. Um, but I, I, and I do think that the threes, the things that Marx is trying to do and Engels are trying to do here are the same thing that, you know, like when you have laws of motion that allow you to determine where a projectile is going to land, of course, you know, of course, that can be put to all sorts of uses. Um, and unfortunately, many of the uses that come to my mind are all war making, if you will. 
Um, but I'm not sure that's there's not the only other use, but but that's the point of the science. The point of the science is to understand the world so that you can pr make predictions about if I do this, then this is what will happen. And therefore, maybe I could then do this thing. I could make this thing and then shape my environment in a particular way based on certain predictive patterns that come out of this, out of these theories of science. So that's what's going on here. And if I reject all of that, then I have to then say, well, there's no point in talking about society in terms of classes and things like that. But, um, but I don't, but I will say that I'm, I exist in a kind of like a uh, resonant state, you know, um, resonance in chemistry is like something that takes two shapes, but is never in one of, one of yeah. those two, it can be three shapes even. Yeah. It's never in either of those. It exists in, in all of them at the same time and sort of vacillates between those. So I feel like my relationship with science has gone from firmly over here to not all the way rejecting it. It's in some transitory uh, vibrating state with not sure what of it I want to hold on to and what part of it I want to reject. Um, and I haven't figured out what part, what is the core parts that I, of science that I have to go? And what are the core parts of science as understood, not just by scientists, but any idea that you can understand the world in terms of the material senses you have of it and use it for predictive power or predictive abilities. What part of that would I want to retain? for my future life and for our future life together. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I just have complicated, a complicated relationship with science <laughs> right now too. I, uh, I just, I, I just think, uh, you know, in past like revolutionary Marxist quote unquote movements, um, you know, especially having gone through the pandemic and the vaccine, you know, uh, mandate coercion, you know, the shutdowns, like, I see similarities in past like uh, Marxist experiments, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I, you know, that's why I don't, that, that's why I insist on not being, not seeing this, as, you know, with respect, I guess. <laughs> you have to criticize it. You have to attack it. You have to have your questions and opinions. It's not an absolute thing because otherwise we're doing the same thing that we're trying to fight, you know, in a way. And, and that's why I see why people reject or have a, a visceral reaction when they hear Marx, Marxism, communism, because, uh, you know, I think there is um, substance to that feeling, you know, because there, again, in the name of science, right? Like they made uh, experiments that have been oppressive and, and so we have to acknowledge that too. And, but that's why it's important that individuals they read this on their own and make their own opinions, you know, and, and contribute, you know, have the courage to contribute to a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get started, I guess. Um, all right. So um, here's chapter one, bourgeoisie and proletarians. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried out, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large, we're in the common ruin of contending classes. 
So do you have nothing to say about that? Because I do. For me, it's again, I, I take this beyond like just Europe and, and European um, history, right? Uh, because uh, again, a lot of people think that this is only applies to that. But I think of the Inca Empire, the Mayan Empire, you know, African empires, you know, people tend to dismiss that. And, and like a lot of people that I at least interact with or have a weird understanding of history that actually dehumanizes, you know, these cultures because they also had classes, you know, and, and I, I, rem I remember who said this, but there is a common pattern, right? In, 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 in civilizations that collapse, it was a disconnect of the ruling class and the people that were governed, you know, and, you know, people want to portray, you know, indigenous people as this peaceful, blah, blah, blah. No, it was empires. They conquered people, you know, and, and so the, to me, this excerpt speaks to that too, that, you know, this was present in those societies too. Yeah, and I would say, again, since I've already read the preface, that, that first line, I mean, the, that first line here, the history of all hitherto existing societies, the history of class struggles, that is probably the most important line in here because that's that's the thesis under which is everything exists, you know, as to how they're trying to, they're gonna use identifying the classes and the relationship of those classes to understand how society might be changed. But I also found this last line, I've always remembered it. Um, first of all, that the, that the class struggle is, is not just always you can see it. It's a hidden at times, it's, it's an open fight, but it's always existing. That struggle is always existing, um, whether, it's, whether or not you see it because they're saying the classes are not just different, but in opposition to one another. So they're always in, in, in tension with one another. Um, and that, that's that, that energy of that tension is what moves history forward. But, and this is, I really think is so important, it, that, that, that fight ends either in revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or the common ruin of contending classes. I don't know how you could be any more clear that it is not inevitable that we, that this ends well. Um, that's going to be contradicted by the, with the time we reach the bottom. If we get to the bottom of this, you will see that he says it's inevitable that the working class will win. But that line is to me more true than what he's saying at the end. Um, and maybe if we do get to that last part, um, this is what I think is is real Marxism is, is to basically say, look, our, our fate is not predetermined um, and what we do matters uh, to the outcome of humanity. Um, even if we can know what, what, the, where the, what, what the levers for changing that are, how we use them and, and whether we use them make a difference. So in the earlier epochs of history, we find almost everywhere a complicated arrangement of society into various orders, a manifold gradation of social rank. In ancient Rome, we had patricians, knights, plebeians, slaves. In the Middle Ages, feudal lords, vassals, guildmasters, journeymen, apprentices, serfs. In almost all of these classes, in almost all of these classes, again, subordinate gradations. The modern bourgeois society that has sprouted from the ruins of feudal society has not done away with class antagonisms. It has but established new classes, new conditions of oppression, new forms of struggle in the place of the old ones. Our epic, the epic of the bourgeoisie, possesses, however, this distinct feature. It is simplified class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other. 
bourgeoisie and proletariat. I mean, that's something that I struggle with, you know, in understanding at least the present, um, because, you know, there is obviously the ruling class, the, you know, that minority that really dictates how the world runs. Um, and I mean, I, there is, I think there's other works that expand on this and are getting more nuanced. Um, but for example, now, like, right, like we, like <laughs> there's the, this whole tech, uh, auxiliary class right that that uh, helps this system run and like what is it to them like they're fine <laughs> you know like to a degree like they're they're not gonna move society right like and and um so yeah you know yes like you know th these are the principle right like the two groups uh, that are you know contending for power uh but i think that middle part is very important in, in determining uh who wins, um, you know, this fight. And by and large, I think we are unaware that, you know, this is happening, this is how society ran, that these two principal groups, you know, are the contending classes that, you know, would determine the outcome of, of you know, of the future. Yeah, I do. I, I didn't agree that, <laughs> at least I'll say this. I don't agree with Marx on the idea that, oh, now it's been simple. Now it's workers and workers and bourgeoisie. Of course, he, he knows as a middle class, a petty bourgeoisie. Of course, who is part of the working class versus who is a part of the petty bourgeoisie? There's always these discussions. There's discussions about the role of the police. Are they workers or are they state operators? I now have questions about teachers. There's the question of the military. There's the question of workers in the North and say United States versus workers in South America. Like, and I'll look, you can call that false consciousness. You can say, oh, that's confusion, but I'm sorry, that shit's complicated. And they have been able to create all sorts of gradations. There's even the notion of teacher versus paraprofessional. Like when you work, work your way down the wage scale, the, diff, the idea that a person who, earn, who is a wage earner who, has a hundred, who earns $120,000 is that person the same as a worker who earns $20,000 a year versus say $120,000 a year versus a worker who's a basketball player who might earn millions? You know, are we all the same? Like Marx would say, well, I think Marx, I don't know what Marx would say, but if you can tell me that that's simple, then, and that's been simplified now, I currently would say no. I will say that as I think about the world that Allison is talking about being brought into birth, I actually think there's a way that that's doing that. That in the same way that she's saying it's going to make slaves of us all, I do see that the world coming into birth in, through the fourth industrial revolution may actually have a simplifying process, may actually do the thing that Marx is saying was done that I think got very complicated for me, at least in the time I've been alive. But I wonder about this coming era in which all of us are essentially batteries for the um, for the ruling class. And it's become more where more of us will experience the slave conditions directly. And Marx talks about capitalism as slavery later. And I think he wasn't exaggerating because I think the period we're entering into is, is more like what he's describing a play, a time that things will be more simple between the exploited, the exploiter and the exploited. It's going to be easier to see what those things are than it currently is now. I wonder if that that might that makes some potential sense to me. That's how I would say. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, I mean, yeah, we've talked on the show, right? Like, I think it's 
I mean, different people say this, but like, I think Fabio Vigo was someone who talked about the techno-feudal order, right? Uh, that that's, that's basically the term coin. And I do, I mean, now that you mentioned that, it, it does make sense because uh, I do see more people being thrown into, you know, the proletariat, you know, like right now, every crisis, right? That's what we're reading on the, you know, manifesto, how every crisis creates more, throws more of the petty bourgeois into the proletariat. Right. Uh, right now, we're facing over eight percent inflation. Right, and and by some people's estimate, we haven't hit bottom. Yeah. And 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 so there will be more people joining. You know, the bottom. Of, you know, the the ranks of the proletariat. They will have to go find a job. You know, or be part of this uh, gig economy and all this crap you know, that's coming our way. That's already here, but it's you know exacerbating. And and so yeah, it's very interesting. From the serfs of the Middle Ages sprang the chartered burghers of the earliest towns. From these burgesses, the first elements of the bourgeoisie were developed. The discovery of America, the rounding of the Cape, opened up fresh ground for the rising bourgeoisie. The East Indian and Chinese markets, the colonization of America, trade with the colonies, the increase in the means of exchange, and in commodities generally, gave to commerce, to navigation, to industry, an impulse never before known, and thereby to the revolutionary to the revolutionary element in the tottering feudal society, a rapid development. Um, the feudal system of industry in which industrial production was monopolized by closed guilds now no longer sufficed for the growing wants of the new markets. The manufacturing system took its place. The guild masters were pushed on one side by the manufacturing middle class. Division of labor between the different corporate guilds vanished in the face of division of labor in each single workshop. Do you think there is like guild masters now? You know, guild, you know, in society, like. Well, I I do think that unions, <laughs> union leadership, and and the way that unions operate are kind of like that um, mm -hmm. in terms of sectioning off and protecting a section of the working class, um, but not representing the whole. Um, and, but so that never went away, I guess, you know, cause he's arguing that they were pushed to the side, right? The guild masters. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I personally think in some way they've always stayed around, you know, in that form, uh, because, uh, again, you know, unions are in it just for the protection, like you said, of the, that particular section of the class, not in it for, uh, a, a, you know, for society as a whole, you know, it's just me and my own and, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in the other section, just to talk about how this bourgeoisie and the development of new economic conditions was essentially do, using the, the, the development of modern capitalist economics you know, from its early state after the, you know, through the French and American Revolution and getting rid of the feudal order, how it used its rapid development to just displace everything that was previously there. Um, you know, and he uses that term, the revolutionary element. Mm -hmm. For me, I think that's often associated with something that's good, but I don't necessarily think it's a good thing. But I would say, I would, he would say that in order for society to continue to produce it was going to have to have this change. I guess that's what he would, he would say. 
Meantime, the markets kept ever growing, the demand ever rising. Even even manufacture no longer sufficed. Thereupon, steam and machinery revolutionized industrial production. The place of manufacture was taken by the giant modern industry, the place of the industrial middle class by industrial millionaires, the leaders of the whole industrial armies, the modern bourgeoisie. Um, I feel like he's just describing a process that later gets discussed as like growing monopoly, growing concentration of wealth into fewer and fewer hands. Anything you want to say about that? Um, I think I'll comment later because I think, well, overall, I think he's in describing and, and I think there is some sort of sense of awe, you know, in a way, you know, of, you know, uh, these productive capacities, right, unleashed yeah. by, the, uh, by the, you know, the bourgeois system. I agree with that. I agree. And I think that I question that thought on it. Modern industry has established the world market for which the discovery of America paved the way. This market uh, has given an immense development to commerce, to navigation, to communication by land. This development has in its turn reacted on the extension of industry. And in proportion as industry, commerce, navigation, railways extended in the same proportion the bourgeoisie developed, increased its capital and pushed into the background every class handed down from the middle ages. We therefore, we see therefore how the modern bourgeoisie is itself the product of a long course of development, a series of revolutions in the modes of production and of exchange. Again, like revolution, it's not, uh, like you said, not something good necessarily. It's just a process of uh, fundamental change of dynamics, you know, especially I think in, in power dynamics, at least for me. Yeah. Um, and but what I do read in this is his notion that what capitalism is is always changing the means of production, always changing its and and revolutionize revolutionize revolutionizing those means of production to extend itself in every sphere. Right now, he says communication by land. Obviously, now we do communication not just by land, but through the through the air as well, into water through the air and in space, and so all these things have extended. And just because he talks about it in terms of the, the development of rail, I think he's talking about a dynamic that we ourselves are facing as we enter the fourth industrial revolution, like uh, of a, an extension into new into new eras areas that the capitalists need to go in order to keep their float their boat uh, afloat. Now, at that time, it, it was a it was revolutionized revolutionary revolutionizing things to displace things, but. The pressure of market forces, of competition, of commerce on all this, that to me is what's in what's happening today. And that's why for me, when I read this, I go, yeah, this is the same thing happening in the fourth industrial revolution. And, and there was another revolution in between, right? Between that, you know, and, and now, like, you know, the digital revolution. But again, also, I would argue, too, you know, like financialization of, you know, it might be another sort of revolution, you know, how, that, you know, the capitalists um, push for it in order to keep the system going and, and again, doing what it's supposed to do, which is expand and seek profit everywhere. Yeah. <clears throat> Each step in the development of the bourgeoisie was accompanied by a corresponding political advance of that class. An oppressed class under the sway of the feudal nobility, an armed and self-governing association in the medieval commune, here, independent urban republic, as in Italy and Germany, 
their taxable third estate of the monarchy, as in France, afterwards in the period of manufacturing proper, serving either the semi-feudal or the absolute monarchy as a, as a counterpoise against the nobility, and in fact, cornerstone of the great monarchies in general, the bourgeoisie has at last since the establishment of modern industry and the world market conquered for itself in the modern representative state, exclusive political sway. sway. The executive of the modern state is but a committee for, the man for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. Um, and again, I think he's speaking to saying, these folks were being used by the old order, by uh, the people who are the ruling classes of their time, but now these people who were being used by them have now come forward through their own revolution, displaced them, and brought into a whole new economic order and political and social order as a result of that. So he's just describing that process. For me, the most meaningful statement of this is the executive of the modern state is but a committee for the managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. People quote that a lot, but the implications of that are huge. And it's it was, socialists have forgotten that this state of Biden and Trump and Facebook and Meta and blah, 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 you know, and teaching uh, education system, a healthcare system is but a committee for the managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. It is not our state. It is their state. It is their state that they use to enrich themselves, to empower themselves, and to push their plan, which used to be about pushing out a whole feudal order and making their world their world, not the feudal, not the feudal world. But now those folks are gone. And the only people they got to use their state to do is to keep all of us in check um, and expand their power within it. So like this line right here, the executive of the modern state is but a committee for the managing of the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. I don't know how any person who read the manifesto or calls himself a Marxist doesn't then look at what the state is doing with lockdowns and anything it's doing and say, that's just the fucking bourgeoisie. That's not from me. That's for the bourgeoisie. That's, that's law right there. And that, and like Marx doesn't come to that easily. He had to, he has to look through at history to get to understand that point. So I can't see how you can claim any Marxism and not understand how central that line is into understanding the current state, like our current state that we live in. Uh, again, same, that's a quote that lives in my mind, um, you know, in, in understanding that same thing why I don't vote. <laughs> you know, that's when I understood that, you know, is that, you know, this is the reason why I also, adhere to the notion that voting is actually surrendering ourselves to the system, right? Because um, uh, we are sold this notion by, again, bourgeois institutions, like, you know, the educational system to brainwash us into thinking that if we don't vote, then, you know, we're going to get, you know, a shitty end, <laughs> a shittier end than we already do. And, and so, yeah, and no, I agree with you, like, that line actually changed my perspective on many things. Uh, you know, again, the educational system, I was thinking growing up in Guatemala and, and how they made me, um, you know, like praise the flag and this and that. And, and I understand that historically, you know, like nationalism has had a role in fighting imperial forces, but it's still part of the same equation for me. You know, like we often in Latin America, for example, celebrate, oh, our independence. You're celebrating the independence of the bourgeois class, you know, of your, you know, your country. 
you're not that's not independence for working people you're still getting exploited you're still getting you know dictated you know you don't have freedom you know because you don't have a say you know and a lot of people in latin america understand this you know that they, they are actually they don't vote or or if they vote they vote for them you know like a some a chicken or or in in people like you know look down on these people but actually i think that's very rational you know like you're already getting something shitty. You know the system is not going to change. But someone gives you something, you're going to take it. You know, and, and so, but there is this arrogance. I think from I'm speaking to people that immigrate to this country, that they look back at their country and think that those people are stupid and dumb. You know, while adhering to the stupidity, stupidity and of this system in this country. You know, and, you know, like in, in participating in things like the census or, you know, or voting. You know that in in reality, these are systems of measuring how how much people are surrendering to to the you know, and, and so same thing with the you know Supreme Court, right? Like the the judicial monarchy that we talk about. You know, we are begging these systems to change. We are begging people that have no interest in anything changing. You know, we are calling things broken systems when in reality they're working as they're supposed to. Right. You know. It, because they are again, these these systems are um, uh, designed to manage the affairs of the ruling class, which is the bourgeoisie. Yeah, and I think that part is for what you said. I, I agree with that the most. Which is, this really highlights the notion of the error. If you were going to see it this way, the error of calling it a broken system. It's not a broken system. It's a revolutionary system whose time has passed. We can say. Um, and one could one could have questions about well what what was so good about what came what that it came to be in the first place but the but remember it, it itself originated out of an oppressive system of minority rule over a majority um, and so at, so I do believe it's not a broken system the system works wonderfully to manage the affairs of the bourgeoisie the part I want to highlight though is. And I agree with you about voting, but in some ways, when we when we say things like that, we're getting into section two of of communist manifesto, which is the part about oh, what is the role of communists. Then, if this is the world we're describing, then what is the role of communists? And I don't want to do too much of that because I think even if we read that section, I thought there was some the way Marx approached it was kind of reformist in many ways. I didn't really agree with some of his formulations. Um, but I think that's the area where a lot of discussion be, can be had by people who agree about the, the bourgeois nature of the state. Okay, then how do we deal with it? Would you vote? Would you not vote? Like, I think there's a live question about that. Um, but first, one has to say, can we first agree that this state is not our state? None, no part of it. And because of that, anything that comes out of it is going to have to be understood as not for us. And, and because we, it's from a class whose interests are in opposition to ours, we have to understand that the products that will come of that state are have to, by definition, be in opposition to us. And whether we recognize it that way or not, that's, that's just the reality. At least if you accepted Marx's notion and Marx and Engels' notion that the, the, the bourgeois, that the, the present state is just for, to manage the affairs of a bourgeois, of the bourgeoisie. Okay. The bourgeoisie historically has played a most revolutionary part. The bourgeoisie, wherever it has got the upper hand, 
has put an end to all feudal patriarch patriarchal idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest, than callous cash payment. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism into the icy water of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal worth into exchange value and in place of the numberless indefeasible chartered freedoms has set up that single unconscionable freedom, free trade. In one word for exploitation, veiled by religious and political illusions, it has substituted naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. The bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honored and looked up to with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into paid wage laborers. Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to make a comment on that. It's just, uh, you know, that's something that did stick out to me, you know, because, I mean, not to say that the feudal order, you know, or that period was, like, better, right? In, but I, I do think there was a change, right? Like, people studied because they were interested in something. They learned because, and not everyone had access to it, right? Like, let's be honest, you know, a lot of people from privileged, you know, classes, uh, were the ones developing, observing, writing stuff down. Um, but um, again, the motivation was knowledge. It wasn't, uh, you know, necessarily profit, right? And, and I think that, you know, nowadays everything's profit. You know, like there, there, there is part of uh, seeking a career involves money. You know, you can't just learn because you want to learn. You can't just seek knowledge because you want to seek knowledge or produce something, you know. And that is that that exposes to me our situations as wage slaves, right? That in in, in the shackles that the, the, the limit our our our, our creative uh, capacities as humans. That you know we can't just pursue whatever we want. You know we have to account for the limitations of exploitation. You know, and 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 that includes paying rent or mortgage. Uh, you know, uh, you know, having to buy stuff, you know, uh, to sustain our, our lives, ultimately healthcare, you know, uh, even, even going into the grave, dying, you know, it, it, it is, there is a cost to that in this system, you know, you can't just bury someone in the, the forest, you know, uh, there are numerous laws to limit you. And so that, I guess just my whole point is that we are shackled in so many ways, uh, from pursuing what we really want or, you know, or for just because we want to. Yeah. And what I would say in some ways in reading that section, um, there were times when as I read Marx and Engels saying stuff that seemed to like really criticize the past, but speak of this revolutionary change as like you said, kind of marveling at it. But here in that, in this paragraph, he is noting, or they are noting, that the ex we are exchanging one set of crap ideas, patriarchal, idyllic relations that came out of feudalism, for another set of crap ideas. That is, everything's about naked self-interest, cash payment, free trade, you know, egotist that, you know, the Philistine sent sentimental sentimentalism turned into the icy water of egotistical calculation. There isn't, he is not, he's not making, or they're not making like a, 
well, that's bad and this is good. He's talking about a new bad, but he is describing the fact that all of this stuff that was there before is now being replaced as a result of the revolution. And I, one thing I will take from that is to understand how much could be changed in a new revolution and it would, and how much an old world could be uprooted and destroyed in making that revolution. So I, in some ways that paragraph is a, gives me a little bit more sense that there's a balance of like, you do understand Marx, this thing is shit. I mean, of course he does. He wrote about it. I mean, he spent his life to it, but there's a way that I was feeling like he's talking about this. Again, it's that science and that, that reverence for it. Um, so I kind of have this sneaking suspicion sometimes as I read this, um, but maybe, I don't know. I'm going back and forth as I read it. Okay. The, bourgeois, the bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relations to a mere money relation. The bourgeoisie has disclosed how it came to pass that the brutal display of vigor in the Middle Ages, which, react, which react, reactionaries so much admire, found its fitting complement in the most slothful indolence. It has been the first to show that man's activity, what man, it's been the first to show what man's activity can bring about. It has accomplished wonders far surpassing Egyptian pyramids, Roman aqueducts, and Gothic cathedrals. It has conducted expeditions that put in the shade all former exoduses of nations and crusades. I think he's straight up, you know, making, like looking at uh, with wonder. At the, I think I read it as like the capacity of humans to create, um, you know, uh, that again was brought about by the bourgeoisie, um, mm -hmm. but I, again, it's not. I I take it that you know humans are capable of amazing things, um, not because of the bourgeoisie, not because of capital, but because humans collectively can make wonderful things. Right, but in in this kind of paragraph, I can read in it that the desire of socialists and communists to hold on to things that have been products of this era, because look at what wonders we've produced. Do we really want to get rid of those wonders? And it's like, yeah, because those wonders underneath those one, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say maybe yes, because underneath those wonders was all cash exchange, icy, egotistical, whatever, what's that term? Egotistical calculation and free trade. And that's all that stuff was about, you know? Um, so I hear in these sorts of paragraphs, the kind of pull that modern, that the things that have been produced have for us saying, well, we've got to keep these. We've just got to use these in a better way kind of thing. And yeah, but and I think that's, that's the hard sell for, you know, some people to, you know, to let go of some things, like some conveniences that, you know, if you want to change the world, you're going to have to, sacrifice some things, you know, in society, destroy some stuff, build new things, you know, in, in collectively, right? Uh, at least that's my hope, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this word convenience has been often used over and over again. This convenience is what, what you know, we'll give you this thing, it'll be convenient for communicate, it'll be convenient for, I can't just, but all the, all the things that are sold to us that we're told that are going to be helpful to us which are actually trapping us that word convenience is often used so i wonder if convenience should be the watchword for a future society 
and I think, you know, this is part two. This is the stuff that we have to talk about and really like dissect and go through the stuff that's in our lives and see if it's, you know, really helpful for our society that we, we want to build. Uh, because like you said, you're right. Like, you know, I think by and large, we are clouded and, you know, our vision is tainted, you know, that we think we need some stuff that we don't really need. Uh, because we've been brainwashed and you know and 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 also not not just brainwashed but put in positions that that you know those things become part of our lives yeah and so you know again getting out of that situation will require a collective effort you know yeah and that that part of the relationship of of us of us becoming trapped and imprisoned by commodities that we produce um is something he talks about more in capital um, and that's a feature of alienation and under capitalism as well. Okay. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them, the whole relations of society. Conservation of the old modes of production in unaltered form was on the contrary, the first condition of existence for all earlier industrial classes, constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions Everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguish the bourgeois epic from all earlier ones. All fixed, frozen, fast relations with the train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into the air. All that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. The need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. Uh, that to me is a monster quote. Like, yeah, that to me is like, that is what's happening. Like, mm-hmm. I know people think New World Order, secret plan, but it's important the way Marx is talking about it. First, there's no, there is no option. And the fact that it chases them around the globe, like the capitalists are compelled to do this. I know that you and I are, we're, we're speaking to the converted here because we both agree, but this is why both of us, I think, reject the new world order way when they talk about, oh, there's a, there's a secret plan being held. It's like, there's no secret plan. They are trapped in this system that forces them to revolutionize these things. So the kinds of changes that are being made where I already read an article, I was showing Am, uh, Brandy, um, the next, there's 10 universities that are getting money by, from Meta to build metaversities, 10 of them, you know? And they're talking about historically black colleges and some of the colleges for uh, Latino students and things like that. Like, like, this is not just a fuck. I don't believe this is about singularity. This is about efficiency, production, efficiency, profits, and yes, the growing organic composition of capital, the growing machinery that must be used that needs to displace humans. That's what it does in order to find those profits. I, that's what's happening. And then, right, that's one contradiction that by displacing humans, you know, you displace consumers. And so how do humans stay in the system that needs consumers? And so this is where, you know, we've talked about, you know, uh, cryptocurrency and or these systems of uh, cash payments or uh, what was that? Um, what was that article that Alison shared with us? The uh, conditional cash transfers. Yeah. Uh, 
um, that you know we think will be in play in the future. Uh, maybe, I don't know if it will be for everyone, but for a significant uh, part of the population that is will be dependent on the state. And you know, Allison has made allusions to um, the history of uh, slaves and uh, natives, uh, indigenous people in, in this country, right? That live in reservations as a sort of um, you know, example of what will be coming on our way, you know, will become words, more people will become words of the state. Um, and so essentially it's an evolution of mass incarceration for me, you know, that you won't need buildings necessarily, especially with technologies like geofencing and this stuff. Like I just came back from Mexico, I was talking to you, Libson, and uh, facial recognition is normal at the, at the San Francisco airport in San Jose, apparently. I didn't know, but you don't even have to fill a, a form now. And not, and not only like, when I read the article, they even know when you onboard the plane, who you are, you know? And, and so I, I, all these things are gonna come into play uh, to maintain the system uh, that is, whose contradictions are, are you know, increasing in, in intensity. And, in, 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 you know, that's the claim that Fabio Biggie makes in a way, right, like that, the shutdown of the global economy wasn't a shutdown to save lives. It was an economic crisis that was when they wanted to avert. And anybody, you know, who says that these people are stupid is, you know, <laughs> really needs to rethink because like, for example, inflation, like people, even Jimmy Dore, you know, like uh, people that come to Jimmy Dore, they say that, um, that the, you know, the Federal Reserve don't know what they're doing, that they're stupid. And I'm like, no, they knew that inflation was gonna happen as a result of all this. So they do have, you know, some sort of, at least they think they have a plan. You know, you know we've been, I've been saying that at least that the inflation was gonna eat us alive, you know, and, and, and it's happening, it's gonna continue to be here. And they know it, they know that it's not gonna create uh, an uprising because COVID proved that. You know, because like, and this is something that's different in other countries, uh, at least in my experience, that in other countries a rise in the, you know, uh, or like a price of uh, the bus fare, people will fucking go to hell and like they will rise up against the government. But I think there's something particular in this country where people are completely brainwashed into accepting, you know, this pillage that's been happening, especially over the last two years. You know, if we really see this through an economic lens, right? Like, uh, you know, there's been a massive theft. Well, we're paying, you know, inflate, you know, hype. Our purchasing power just decreased by eight <laughs> percent. You know, and, and and so we are all poor. You know, especially the people at the bottom, while the asset class, uh, owning class is, you know, it's gaining more value to their wealth. Um, but I guess, uh, can you go back to the article? Yeah. And so, yeah, so we talked about, you know, all this technology expansion. We think that, you know, data mining, right? We talked about that before uh, as a new uh, areas that, that the capitalist system is expanding to exploit, you know, because they run out of geographical space, you know, the whole world is connected in this global system. So there has to be some sort of revolutionary thing. And, and I think this is what the data economy is about. Uh, that they're attempting to continue to perpetuate the system and solve those contradictions of, you know, pillaging workers while wanting to maintain consumers, they're going to have to create other forms. And that's why, again, I think uh, we're going to be more tracked 
and we're going to become more dependent on handouts from the state. Yeah, I mean, I. So first off, for me, what's meaningful about this is that to understand that the the feature of capitalism is is constant change, and so that the, the kinds of changes that we're seeing take place that have taken place from 2020 to now, what's going to be happening? These are normal operations of capitalism, like. It's not, that's why I go, oh, of course, he, I mean, he's been talking about the fact that, th that nothing is sacred under capitalism. The only thing that's sacred is the, is the chase for profits and the chase and the competition for that profits. Um, and that they, he describes them as chasing them across the globe. Um, and again, capitalist meets capitalist at different parts of that globe. Um, but I don't agree that the capitalists in this country, the U.S. capitalists are think it is a like I do agree that inflation does a lot of things for them um and it 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 lowers the value of all the payouts to like people's pensions and things like that you can you can eliminate people's pension through through inflation you know so it's just one feature of of essentially limit limiting or eliminating the wealth or the what the value of what people own particularly workers inflation is a great tool for doing that um, but I do think they do worry about revolution here. That's why I think the data tracking, the like all the surveillance state that is being constructed is because they worry that there is that the United that US workers are not unique, that they will have a revolution here if they push these things too hard. And they know they plan on pushing them harder. So the construction of the surveillance state is part of understanding that the wealth extraction on US workers has to grow because they're competing with a state that is also doing the same to its own workers. So for me, I feel like they don't pose, they don't push inflation because they know they can get over on us. It is part of the apparatus of control, of fear, of, of precarity that they're going to use to make people feel like they can't move out of their box as they build a tighter box for us. So, and that, this notion of, because I do believe class struggle is a feature of history and it doesn't always, you can't always see it, but it's always there because the classes are in opposition to one another. That's where it gets complicated when, you know, you talk about, right, like people like teachers and, and other unions that are participating in, in, in building the systems. Um, yeah. And, and so that's kind of what fits my, you know, opinion of, yes, of course, they, like, I agree with you. They, they know that, you know, if you push too hard, anybody will rise up. You know, anybody will get fed up and they have to have contingencies for that. But I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I'm not very hopeful in, in the working yeah. of this country. The ruin of contending classes is always there and seems ever more likely. The common ruin, I guess, of contending classes. Ruin, yeah. <laughs> the... Um, the bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. To the great chagrin of reactionists, it has drawn from under the feet of industry the national ground on which it stood. All old established national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed. They are dislodged by new industries whose introduction becomes a life and death question for all civilized nations by industries that no longer work up indigenous raw materials, but raw material drawn from the remotest zones. Industries whose products are consumed not only at home, but in every quarter of the globe. In place of the old wants, satisfied by the production of the country, we find new wants. 
required for their satisfaction the products of distant lands and climes. In place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we have intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations. And as in material, so also in intellectual production, the intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. National one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness become more and more impossible. And from the numerous national and local literatures, there arises a world literature. Yeah, I'm not so sure about this, you know. Um, I mean, what, what do you make of, um, what is it? Uh, oh, should I, should I stay there? Hold on. Okay, yeah, the intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. What do you make of that? I, I mean, in some ways, although, again, he's, he doesn't write about imperialism. That's something Lenin wrote about. Um, he's kind of describing a process that many people in the NWO world see as going on, like a global economy, a global culture, not like, and he's saying, yes, capitalism tends towards that. It tends towards pursuing its own interests everywhere. Um, he's not emphasizing that competition at this point. He's speaking of a feature that he is seeing in capitalism that tends towards a homogenization. I take that as sort of, I see, the, if one was to talk about multinational corporations um, and with, with, which, which have a, some connection to nation states, this is how people see it. They see states no longer running the world. They see these larger, more massive entities which extend beyond states yeah. as really the ones that decide and run things. I think there's truth. I think he, but all I can say is in the Communist Manifesto are the descriptions of capitalism that resonate with what the NWO folks see as what's taking place in the world. But I'm pretty sure Marx and Engels do not see this as coming as a result of a collective group making a decision. Mm -hmm. um, they see it as a part of a process of a class divided society that, that exists with class antagonisms and the pressures of a particular economic system, which forces, uh, which is the free trade is the watchword and profits is the hose, you know, is the end all and be all. So that's, that's what was interesting to me about this. Is it, is it, um, is it actually described some of the ways that I think the NWO folks look at it? Hmm. What do you think? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think a little more Liberty. Um, and I guess I, it just makes me think of, you know, like again, Guatemala, uh, my family and, you know, like traditionally they're, um, Maybe he spoke about it before, but yeah, like th there are things that have, that do change that become uh, similar to what we experience here. For example, um, it was uncommon for people to work at nighttime in Guatemala, right? Now it's normal because Walmart came in and Walmart is open, you know, pretty much. And also it was uncommon to eat Little Caesars, <laughs> you know, pizza. And now it's common over there because it's present over there. Yep. Pizza Hut and blah blah blah. So there is this process, and it's not so much about books, but in the way we experience the world, that does become more common around the world. Um, you know, as more as this again, like you said, the uh, 
corporations and seek profit everywhere in the world. And so in that, that's how I read this part, uh, that there is a, a process where, yes, we, we all become familiar with stuff. <laughs> Uh, because in reality, there is no uniqueness. There is just mass production of this one thing. Um, And and it's pretty similar everywhere. Um, Yeah, I think that's the kind of thing he's describing. Um, And that's a great example of how culture is shaped by virtue of the way things are produced and then consumed. And then one more thing, like, basically... (laughs) Business models, you know, I worked at different restaurants and it's same, the same model, <laughs> you know, like you, you, you use the same similar tools, the same model and it's repeated everywhere, you know, and, and, and I would venture to say that it's not that different in China than it is in, in parts of Africa or, you know, in Latin America, it's, it's, it's the same frame of making profit is, you know, repeated everywhere. Yeah. And when they are, I remember when. They were, when they were efficient, when, when Japan's auto industry was seen as the model for how to do it, there were ways that the U.S. auto industry went to, to look at the Japanese to then revolutionize its own and created like Saturn and things like that. So these, nothing is fixed. Everything has to change. And this is what I believe is explaining. This is why I believe we are all chasing China is the U.S. is attempting to change, transform itself to become the engine of change the way it sees China as having made that progress in its own for for in its own country and at the expense of its own working class. And, and it is, yeah, no, it's true. I just wanted to backtrack a little bit about the comment on culture and in this, also the illusion of choice, you know, that we have uh, uh, products in the U S for example, if you go to Latin American markets, or at least the countries I've been to, you don't see, you know, the shelves of, this, of the same crap, you know, they did the number, but it, it, when you really look behind it, it's really a few corporations owning the different brands. <laughs> and it's basically the same thing. And so, again, this is another way of um, homogenizing the experience, the human experience everywhere. You know, like we really don't have a lot of choice to, in, in variety of things. Yeah. The board, oh, this, I, I think this one is going to be interesting. The bourgeoisie, by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production, by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all, even the most barbarian nations, even the most barbarian nations into civilization. The cheap prices of commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls, with which it forces the barbarians intensely, the barbarians intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. It compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, i.e. to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. Do you want to say something first or should I? I mean, I think it speaks to what we were saying earlier about, you know, the models of, um, you know, making profit. And, you know, if one model is more efficient than the other, then they'll grab it and apply it. And, you know, and that's why I, what I see when it says uh, it creates a world after its own image. Um, I do, I do have a problem with like the cheap prices of commodities being the, the heavy artillery that drives, you know, 
I'm not so sure about that. Um, yeah, sorry, I, I don't know what to say about that, but I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think that is necessarily true. That is just cheap commodities, because you know there is military force right, in position. There is economic dominance. You know, like uh, a lot of countries in, in again Latin America is what I know. You know, in the the World Bank and things like that have been used to impose these systems. Uh, it hasn't been cheap commodities. <laughs> they've actually spent a lot of, uh, you know, they've gotten a shitty deal, you know, basically by by being forced to as a satellite state of imperial powers. Yeah, I mean, my issue with it, okay, so I'll say something because he describes the cheap prices of commodities as the heavy artillery. Heavy artillery is just one piece of an entire mechanized army, uh, you know, an entire mechanized aggressive and violent approach. Mm -hmm. But the, well, for me, what it is, is, is not, it's, it's to understand that they are going to use um, reducing the cost of producing an item and their ability to do that by increasing the degree to which they, by increasing efficiency of production, which mostly means reducing the section of that production that is relying on human labor and more and more expands into me mechanized labor, mm -hmm. uh, dead, dead labor machines. That's how they do it. And that is a feature of, that is the heavy artillery of com competition between Coke and Pepsi, but it's also the heavy artillery of competition between U.S. corporations and corporations in Mexico, U.S. corporations and corporations in China. So I will agree with this thing as speaking of its like it, it, it. What I like about it is it locates in it the violence of the of this process. It's not cheap prices, yeah. so that it can help the consumer. It's about breaking down your opponent and defeating them in war. Yeah, okay. The part I don't like is, and I I understand that maybe it's ironic, the barbarian versus the civilization. But I I just don't I don't trust that. I don't know where he's coming from on that because. He, under, he knows about primitive communism. He knows about indigenous cultures. He knows, of, but maybe he is like using it ironically. But at that part, I just be like, you know, this is gonna, there is so much arrogance in the West that I feel like people who read this yeah. and who talk about the revolutionary nature of capitalism, I know that he also talked about how capitalism came born out of mud and blood, you know, like, but, you know, unfortunately, with because of a lack of clarity around this, this this has led to modern socialists being the the imperialists of today, you know, mm -hmm. and thinking that we have to like save these countries and save these barbarians. And if he's being ironic, it's not ironic enough. Um, and that's the part. And so that's that suspicion where I'm going like, I wish I wish you might have worded differently. I mean, that's. I don't, that's not an, I don't know how important that is, but there's something in that, that, that speaks to a problem we have today about the arrogance and the imperialist mindset of mo of the modern Marxist, which I see embedded within, within this. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, no, I absolutely see that, you know, that there is an arrogance that we have to save people, right? Like they can't run their affairs on their own. That's why I have an issue with um, kind of projecting our struggle here because our struggle here is unique to us. 
Well, and at the same time, I read this, he goes, it compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. So to me, that I guess that's fairly clear, like he's using civilization ironically, you know, when he says, because he is not happy with the, or, the, the state of affairs on the, on the globe at this point. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's weird. You know, I, 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 I don't think these are important. I don't know. I don't know what's important about what I'm saying, but I want to settling, you know, I, I, I see that. Yeah. The bourgeoisie has subjected the country to the rule of the towns. It has created enormous cities, has greatly increased the urban population as compared with the rural, and has thus rescued a considerable part of the population from, from the idiocy of rural life. See, I know this is where I had a problem. Just as it had made the country dependent on the towns, so it had made barbarian and semi-barbarian countries dependent on the civilized ones. Nations of peasants on nations of bourgeoisie, the East on the West. Okay, well there, I, you know, the idiocy of the rural life. And now I recognize there's a later part where he, the preface where Marx and Engels start to think that the countryside is maybe where the revolution will happen in Russia. Mm -hmm. So I understand how he's not just thinking, oh, well, these folks can't do anything, you know, because he's actually thinking that communism might come out of a, a rural uprisings that are taking place in Russia at the time in the 1870s or something like that. I can't remember when it was. But oh, man, dude, you know, like this is this is Diego Rivera conception of of of, um, you know, capitalism that it look what it's done to civilize us in some ways um, and talking about his revolutionary character as if we may not have to destroy these things that, that have come with it, you know? Um, and so that, that's just a question for me. Should I keep this up here? Yeah. Um, I think that's an important point that at least I've reached, you know, like I, I, I used to have a similar, you know, worldview uh, as I was going through the systems of, education, indoctrination, um, that I thought, you know, people needed to be saved from the idiocy of rural life, essentially, you know, the backwardness of that. That was my attitude, but, you know, and, and now I actually see that as more valuable to keep our humanity, Yeah, you know, because it's, it's, a, it's a connection to the land, right? And so I think that's something that has been missing from, I think a lot of Marxism, you know, and that there is like a, like you said, a Diego Rivera and, and Marx here, like this like glorification of, you know, industrial capacities in a way. Um, and again, the notion that we can just take over, right? And, and, and make use of that for, for our own. And, I, I I don't see that anymore. I, I don't like, you know, I actually see all these technologies and even, even technologies before that, I thought that they were different than, you know, than the data tech, you know, than the than social media, than this stuff, you know, even a lot of that stuff is not necessary, you know, like cars and, you know, and, and living in cities, you know, in, um, so I guess what I'm saying is that there is a lot of rethinking that we have to do. And, you know, and I do see the value that some people that 
uh, I disagree with on some ends. They, they put an emphasis in indigenous life, indigenous ways of seeing the world. And, and I, I do think we're gonna have to insert more of that into our understanding of the world, you know, and I guess in my Marxism, that's, I'm paying attention more to that because that's grounding, you know, that is, that is more natural, you know, and because even if I live in a, in a, in a communistic society in, in metropolis like this, I don't think anxiety would decrease that much. <laughs> like, uh, and so, unless, of course, we, we, we do go back to the idiocy of rural life, which for me means like, yeah, if I'm gonna live in this city, let's plant some shit. Let's, you know, let's, let, let's do uh, things that get us back in touch with nature. You know, it, it's not gonna be that, uh, you know, the production of iPhones that is gonna make my life better. <laughs> it's gonna be having more parks. It's gonna be dancing with people, you know, having festivals with people, you know. It's not gonna be being stuck in traffic to go work somewhere else. You know, it, it, it's gonna be the idiocy again, of, or what he calls yeah. it idiocy, but what I, what I think is more natural, you know, and what we, yeah. the evolution, our evolution, our brains, our bodies, our senses have been, have evolved for that, you know, to be in touch with, with, with what is being rejected here uh, and, and seen as less important because I do think in the communist manifesto, actually there is not a lot of, value for this, <laughs> you know, for, for that. And, and, and in some ways, I also think that that class can be more revolutionary than, than in the industrial people that live in metropolis that are so deep in this, uh, in the system, you know, which I think will be the people that have the tendency to be like, oh, we can keep this, or we should keep that because they're more used to that stuff. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's in, I, that I struggle with, like I don't understand, is if you go to section two, which you might not have read, but the major thing, if there's one feature that he talks about in section two, this is section one really reading, is associating communist revolution with the elimination of private property. He's like, dude, that's just got to go. And the And he says, and he speaks of a time when humans existed when it was communal lands, when it was communal ownership, where private property wasn't even a thing. He's talking about those indigenous populations. He's talking about those primitive communists. I don't understand why you would talk about the idiocy of the, of when, when those traditions and some of those traditions are born out of that time when people were thinking more in terms of common. So I don't know if he's, if he's somehow seeing the feudal serf as completely different than the indigenous, but I think they, I mean, there is a difference, but the, there's, there's a commonality out of it of like, of humanity, of living on the land and being in connection with things as opposed to being a master of things. Um, and the, so he's aware of that. He and Engels are aware, they've written stuff about it. They've, and so I wouldn't understand why you wouldn't, why you'd speak of that kind of thing as something backwards when literally in the next chapter, in the next section, that's the entire platform that he's trying to make an argument to people like private property ain't all that. We can do without private property. Yeah, you can. Look, we did it for fucking a million years. 
you know, or hundreds of thousands of years, not millions, maybe hundreds of thousands of years, we did without private property and we're fine as humans. And so this is where I go, like, I don't think you're helping yourself, but I think this is where I understand, I don't understand what he's caught up in, but it is the same thing that I think many of us as Marxists and socialists get caught up in. That's the scientism. That's the, that, that when we talk about that, that's just, I have a question about it. Yeah. I, I do kind of have a question related to that. Because, I mean, at least my reading of history is that, you know, historically, like, um, I guess the shackles of scarcity or, you know, in have forced people, you know, to be in competition and, you know, conquest. And so I personally, even though I reject a lot of the civilization, quote unquote, a modern civilization because it has been a product of capitalism and profit. I do think there is a degree of collective industry, right? Like that, that needs to happen in order to escape that, that uh, the shackles of scarcity that historically put people one against the other, right? Um, and so I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. That I do, I do. And I don't have that. I don't have an answer for that because I... Yeah. It's like this, it's my relationship to science, it's my relation, my relationship to production and the production under capitalism and its elements of what we would want to keep versus the parts that have to go that I have that same kind of unsureness about. And I guess my guess is that there is a level of industry that we will have to keep, right? But what changes fundamentally, or has to change for me fundamentally is why? You know, what are we trying to serve, you know, and, and, and I think that would shape of the, the how. Um, well, and putting it not under the pressure cooker of, of constantly expanding profits. Yeah. That's, what you, that's what it exists. That's the, 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 the reason for production is that is because of the chasing of profits to put it under the deci human decisions of, yeah. OK, we'll do this. But that's a human decision. That's a collective human decision, not one that one set of people decides for everyone else. Because I, I do go back. I remember going to Tikal in Guatemala and, you know, and seeing these massive cities of the Mayas who were more connected than we are to nature. And, they, and yet they still failed because they still had, you know, the dominance of a smaller class or a bigger class. And so, again, those decisions will have to be collective, you know, and democratic and you know i mean i don't know for certain you know like if we'll if we'll but and that's what we've talked about and that's something i've learned that the struggle is important right what we learn along the way um because in, and we do have to learn to do things collectively otherwise we end up in the same situation where a few people drive the bus off the off the cliff you know um and i guess i do have uh faith in in our collective wisdom you know um and that's why i'm a marxist communist i guess whatever <laughs> so um, i think this will be the last quote we do yeah. um and if folks i'll just say this if this was me and kenny did this whole thing because well i'll, I'll leave this to the end i think this will be the last quote we'll do the bourgeoisie during its rule of scarce 100 years has created more massive more colossal productive forces and have all preceding generations together. 
subjection of nature's forces to man, machinery, application of chemistry to industry and agriculture, steam navigation, railways, electric telegraphs, clearing of whole continents for cultivation, canalization of rivers, whole populations conjured out of the ground. What earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labor? We see then the means of production and of exchange on whose foundation the bourgeoisie built itself up were generated in feudal society. At a certain stage in the development of these means of production and exchange, the conditions under which feudal society produced and exchanged, the feudal organization of agriculture and manufacturing industry in one word, the feudal relations of property became no longer compatible with the already developed productive forces. They became so many fetters. They had to be burst asunder. They were burst asunder. Into their place stepped free competition accompanied by a social and political constitution adapted in it and the economic and political sway of the bourgeois class. A similar movement is going on before our own eyes. Modern bourgeois society with its relations of production, of exchange and of property, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange is like a sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called upon by his spells. I think I'll leave it as a, let's see. I think that whole paragraph is kind of important to be honest. All right, uh, then, I'll, then I'll carry on with it. Yeah. All right. Um, for many decade, for, for many a decade past, the history of industry and commerce is but the history of revolt of modern productive forces against modern conditions of production, against the property relations that are the conditions for the existence of the bourgeoisie and its rule. It is enough to mention. It is enough to mention the commercial crises that, by their periodic return, put the existence of the entire bourgeois society on on its trial, each time more threateningly. In these crises, a great part not only of the existing products but also of the previously created productive forces are periodically destroyed. In these crises, there breaks out an epidemic that, in all earlier epochs, would have seemed an absurdity: the epidemic of overproduction. Society suddenly falls, finds itself put back into a state of momentary barbarism. It appears as if famine, a universal war of devastation, had cut off the supply of every means of subsistence. Industry and commerce seem to be destroyed. And why? Because there's too much civilization, too much means of subsistence, too much industry, too much commerce. The productive forces at the disposal of the society no longer tend to further the development of the conditions of bourgeois property. On the contrary, they've become too powerful for their, these conditions by which they are fettered. And so soon as they overcome these fetters, they bring disorder into the whole bourgeois society, endanger the existence of bourgeois property. The conditions of bourgeois society are too narrow to comprise the, the wealth created by them. And how does the bourgeoisie get over the crisis? On the one hand, by enforced destruction of a mass productive, of, of a mass of productive forces. On the other, by the conquest of new markets and by the more thorough exploitations of the old ones. That is to say, by the paving the way for more extensive and more destructive crises and by diminishing the means whereby crises are prevented. Yeah, that's, a, that's there's so much fucking stuff in that one and we're ending, but final words, Kenny, uh, in terms of what you wanna say about this. Um, and should I keep it showing? Yeah, please. Um, okay. I, I mean, it's like you said, there's a lot. I, 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 when you asked me to reread this, I took a lot of notes on this paragraph. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but especially, 
I, I think now like people realize that crises are periodical in this system. Yeah. And in some ways you can argue they become more constant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, Fabio Vigi argued that the COVID cover up what it was in essence trying to cover up a massive financial crisis that was coming our way and that they were trying to cool down the economy it was not about life because the greedy capitalists don't care about life they care about profit it's not about morality for them you know it's profit what drives the system and so i guess what i'm pointing to is that again i've heard so many people say that the federal reserve is stupid that they don't know what they're doing and I disagree. You know, I, I I also disagree that that they are that they have control of things. Uh, they they know that shit is messed up. <laughs> Basically, they know the system is in trouble. They knew inflation was coming when they dumped a bunch of money in the economy. Um, and you know, my point is that every time they try to fix a situation they plant the seeds right for the next one. I think Marx says that it's in another reading. I don't remember where it's at. Yeah. But basically that's what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. You know, that we, we are, right now we're experiencing what they planted in 2008, what was planted in 2001. They've mm-hmm. also used similar tools to try to resolve this crisis. You know, and, and I guess my prediction based on, the Marxist model, right? Like that, that says that, you know, basically profit is the lifeblood of this system, you know, is that we will be facing more crisis. Mm-hmm. And, and like we've said, um, this ends in war because, you know, these alliances, and this is a difference that we have with the new world order people, right? That these alliances are not by a, a group of people that are plotting and planning everything, you know, the, the, for to maintain their, their position in the world in ruling the world what what i you and i argue i think is that these these forces this crisis this trying to solve crisis seeking markets you know because they have to otherwise it dies you know and mm-hmm. and their power gets dissolved if they don't continue to be aggressive you have to be aggressive in the system this ends in war and, and so it's not you know, environmental catastrophe, like that's something that you poised before that is gonna end our lives or, 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 or threaten the lives of everyone. It, it, it's this competition that ends in war, you know, and with the full display of the latest technological, you know, stuff that they use in war, because it's about dominance, it's about having the upper hand, it's about destroying your opponents. It's, it's not about cooperation, you know. Yeah. Um, for me, the, the thing that's, I mean, there's an, the earlier paragraphs have some stuff thing that I would want to say, but I think you, I'm glad you asked me to, to read that last paragraph because for me, the key feature, Marx is not, and Engels are not making an accident when they describe the bourgeoisie as a sorcerer who has summoned four powers from the netherworld that has called up that he's implying that they cannot control. And I very much agree with him on this. Like this beast, this capitalist beast, which is not about individuals or even a single corporation, but about a system that wraps the globe in it, is 
beyond the control of any of these players. But that is their job is to attempt to control it, attempt to master it. That, that is their task. And it's an impossible ta task, but they have to try. And in doing so, and in trying to do so, they recognize that they sometimes by, by plan have to destroy massive sections of productive capital. They have to by plan. And other times it happens out of not planning. And that does lead to wars, which I do think in this case of a war will be like if you die from a bomb or from the nuclear fallout, are you dying from war or are you dying from the destruction of the environment? You know, like both. Right. You know, so it it but also within it, he is saying that with, it's within that crisis is the kernel out of which the necessity of revolution occurs. Like that is why revolution ha happens. Revolution doesn't happen because this system sucks. I would like a better system. It happens because the, sy the systems that exist have produced, bring, brought things into production that, that um, helped expand it. But at some point, it no longer is expansive. It is destructive and it, and it, and it collapses ever more on itself. And then new things must emerge out of that. We didn't get to the part where he talks about that. that, that we, we didn't get to the part where he talked about that force being the working class, ultimately. Like the working class is the actual one product out of which can solve this riddle of capitalism. But it can only solve the riddle not by maintaining capitalism, but by destroying it, taking it away and bringing a new order into being. And he does not say what that order is. The only thing he says about that order that he's most sticks with on part two is the elimination of private property out of such an order. Maybe I kind of agree with him. I think when I think about how to live, I think it, we are talking about people living like they did in, in the Hmong indigenous, like communally where property ownership was like, what are you talking about? We don't even understand what you're saying, you know? So I, but beyond that, seizing hold of means of production, maybe how much, what we decide to do with it, I'm not sure. But I, I feel like this paragraph is brilliant in describing in 1840s something that we see happening right now, like the world being rent asunder, not because somebody said they want to have a singularity or some people have a crackpot plan, which I think those plans will exist. But the, 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 the engine, the motor for that plan is not just some idea out of your head like a god like god's being born from the head of zeus the engine for the singularity is profits is the drive for profits and the competition for profits and these ideas emerge out of a economic situ economic conditions so this this isn't something this is a system that binds us all there's a few people who benefit from it um but we are all bound within it and it has its own logic like and the the logic he's describing to me makes more sense out of what we're seeing than, than a notion that some people think we're going to make a singularity or we're going to like, I under, like again, I, Allison's going to talk about digital twins. And I, you can read an article right now, which is talking about digital twin university. I do believe that stuff is happening. But I think the reason it's being called into being, the reason the sorcerer is bringing that to, is manifesting that spell is, is the, is the, is the, is the attempt to find new new sources of profit out of the competition for that profit, and the other feature that's not talked about here is not just the crisis of profit due to overproduction, but the crisis of profitability that comes 
when more and more of the features of your production become less living labor and more mechanized and what's called dead labor. The basis for profits all exist in living in the actions and the work of living labor. That's where all surplus value is extracted. If Marx, and this is not in Calvinist Manifesto, but it's more in capital. If Marxism is right, then it basically says you can't do it. The thing, the, the, the miracle they're trying to produce is an impossible miracle. That spell will fail. Because they're in the in the formation of more and more dead labor and the formation of more and more machinery, the wedge of slice of that that exists as profit will get smaller and smaller and smaller, and out of that will come new crises. Is the the the, the collapse in the rate of profit and the, the fall in the rate of profit? So, I think they're screwed no matter what. But the fact is, is we are screwed no matter what as long as the system is maintained. So I wanted to comment on on the profit situation and. You know, like certain notions of. So when I hear a lot of people about socialism, you know, we talk about the state <laughs> uh, owning things, basically, and directing things, and you know, and I think that that's something that makes people that are more on the other spectrum squeamish, and and rightly so, because that's not what I'm talking about. You know, when I when I say elimination of private property, you know, it doesn't mean that the state will decide for me. You know. Um, because uh, yeah, that's not that is uh, a dictator. That is a different type of dictatorship that I that I'm aiming for. Um, and because for me, there is a difference between personal property and private property. You know, and that's something that you know I think people should wrestle with. Um, and, and you know, and have their own opinions. Um, because like otherwise, we will end up with people following the likes of Daniel Ortega and Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez perpetually, you know, and, you know, again, I invite people to read this and, you know, on their own and like make their own. And hopefully this conversation is helpful. Um, you know, I've learned new things. I think I, I have things to think about. And every time I, I read it, um, <clears throat> you know, I find something new. And even though there is disagreements, I think that, the, the 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 basic framework of understanding capitalism is very good, you know, it's spot on. I don't, <laughs> you know, in in how you know how and why, and it explains the world that we're living under, you know, and more than ever, actually, more than the last, you know, I don't know, so many years, like, um, in. And I don't know. I don't know how useful this will be for you know. Um, I don't know. I, I I guess I'll keep talking about it, and maybe other people see this, and we can find other solutions to you know to what's coming because it's not going to get better. You know, we're not organized. We're not. Um, we're not even having these conversations. You know, and by and large, I think the people who claim to read Marx have fallen under uh, the spell of the state and yeah. state. But I would say that the people who are Marxists are not having the conversation because they're on the side of the state. Yeah. But I do think these conversations are taking place among people who are like, who are feeling the lash of the state on them in a way that they have not ever in their lives. And it is, it is swallowing up more people and it's going to swallow up more people in time and in time and in time, it's going to get larger. We didn't get to the to the section that goes deeper in, which I think 
describes capitalism like a kind of slavery, which I actually mm. think is going to be more accurate. Like the, no. the, the slavery, he's the slave system he's describing capitalism as is coming more and more into focus, actually. Um, I agree and, with that. And so, and he was talking in the 1840s and he kind of thought it was obvious then and, and he was seeing it more developed, but apparently it had more room and it had more slavery to, to go, you know, and I don't think he would have predicted it. And I think he would have thought there would have been revolution by now, but it is not. But I would still say the process that he's describing is there. Um, and so, and I, so I'm not optimistic because, you know, I don't, I don't see how we break out of, I'm not sure how this goes, but I, I am this reading, rereading this section, these sections we've read, what I would say to people is like, they should ask themselves, do you feel like what he, what we're talking about here and the start part, the part we've written, re, I've read, do you feel like it describes this world? If it doesn't, then this is not your thing. You got to look mm -hmm. somewhere else. But if you feel it does, then I would invite you to continue to read this thing. Um, and, uh, and see what you agree with and see what you don't. I personally think Marxism and an understanding of capitalism is going to be necessary to solve the riddle of, as part of solving the riddle of how do we break out of this trap we're in. Um, but we'll see. I think that, um, yeah, I just, again, just wanted to say that, I guess my rule, how I see it is to keep being honest, you know, what I see, because I'm not claiming that I'm a, an expert on Marxism, you know, by any means. Uh, I, I've read other works, and I think if people find that this is useful in explaining the world that they see, there is much more, you know, than this. Um, you know, and that's what's impressive about Marx and Engels. Um, they were, um, they went beyond, you know, and it, and it makes you for me, at least, I found that it explains the world in so many ways um, in the things that might be coming, you know, our way, because um, I do think we are in a, and I think people know <laughs> that we're going through, this is a very particular period in, in, in history, you know, and, and we are going to, people are going to have to get in the, in, in the ring, you know, if they want to shape things you know in or not you know because like um you know there are people where they don't want to get involved and that's fine but you know we, what i say to them is like you can't hide under the sand you know whether you get involved or not things are coming our way and and i i want to have a say in, in in what shape it takes you know um, it's not going to happen through the ballot box, <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it's going to happen in community, you know, in, in, I struggle. In, yeah. And, and so, but for me, it's not just the workplace. For me, it's not just the workplace. <laughs> if anything, that's, you know, very hard and it doesn't mean it doesn't have to happen. It has to, it's fundamental, but. You know, you asked me once before what sustains me and I'm being reminded that it is community that sustains me when, you know, when things get tough, you know, and, and that's what I'm fighting for. You know, that's what I want to fight for. And, 
you know, and, and that's why I am vocal about exposing and giving my opinion, you know, like in, in being vulnerable because, you know, uh, you have to be okay with disagreeing with people and people disagreeing with you. <laughs> and, and it is hard to do that. And, but yet, you know, that's necessary. And that is, like you said, part two in this reading, you know, what do we do? How do we do it? But again, that's not just up to me or you or in what we say is not the, you know, almighty or official story. You know, this is our opinion. And, and we're, I guess I'm inviting people to get in, in here or, you know, anywhere and, and have opinions, you know, and have the courage and don't undermine their, you know, intellectual capacity. Because often, you know, people tell me I don't have anything to contribute. Absolutely, everyone does. <laughs> Yeah. You, know, you live in this society, you live in this world. And, you know, I, I, I want to invite people to re rescue their sense of self and self-worth and self, like uh, their power, you know, and, and, you know, like Trudell, John Trudell is someone that I've been missing a lot. And he talks about the responsibility, not the moral duty, is that we have our responsibility, you know, and, and I, I take that to heart. You know, I think it's up to all of us and we do have a responsibility, but it's not just about us. It's about the people we love, the people we interact with and the people that are coming after us. Yeah, it is. But it is about the world. You know, um, so I guess we're wrapping up now. And what I would say to folks who've listened to this um, is since this is something Kenny and I put together special because a lot of our Comrades are away, Jessica and Eduardo. Um, I, it would be interesting for people to tell us, did you like this? Would you like to see a continuation? Because we only finished half of part one. Like there were four chapters in the book. We only did half of the first chapter. The second half talks about the working class and this new revolutionary class. I would be curious if people would be want us to, to carry on with the second part. Personally, I think this is enough to get people started so they could do their own reading. But if you feel like you want us to, to finish off the chapter, then let us know. Um, and uh, I agree with Kenny. This is all something that we will do together. But at this point, you're going to have to decide for yourself. Is this a journey you want to start on um, and, and decide who you want to take with you on that? So, Or at least who you're going to try to take with you because you don't get to choose that. And, um, and just a little warning, the world doesn't look the same once you start understanding things that's different. correct it's, it's not a fun process but i i do i have felt like i've gotten more out of like the importance of life and the importance of humanity like not just humanity humans but our own humanity so um all right let me do the close out here so thanks kenny um good job actually this was fun um that does it for this week's episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast channel challenge the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes. Wherever you found this episode or on our blog, what-s-left.webnode.com. You can find past episodes of this podcast channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you fancy anything you have heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our eight platforms on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or nine platforms. Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Telegram, or Rumble. 
Uh, you can find our blog and any of those links in the episode notes wherever you found this episode. If you'd like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. Um, Kenny, thank you very much. Um, I'll see you next week then. Yeah. Hopefully we'll see Jessica and then um, we can see what we want to do next week. And uh, that's it. Bye-bye.